0: Has anyone seen Mad Max, you know, the um, post-apocalyptic kind of films? There's a new one, but also there's the three other ones. Well, I'm a complete nerd for the whole series, a new one included. I mean, for me, these are the quintessential post-apocalyptic themed films. I remember watching them as a kid, loving the imagination, the creativity, sometimes the unintentional humor, uh, all the survivors, the kind of things that they're doing, the way they're making sense of the world, and just all this the fun action. I, I loved all of it. I also loved how the landscapes were shot. There was this debris and rubble and this kind of dry sandy desert place with little signs of life. Well the genre has exploded and there are lots of little subgenres. Zombie apocalypse, pandemic apocalypse, resource apocalypse like Mad Max, Aliens War. The list goes on. Apparently there's lots of ways that this apocalypse is gonna come on. And now it's also been in the T V world through Black Mirror, through The Walking Dead. I mean this genre is telling a story. Why has it grabbed our attention so much? I mean, we could be interested in all sorts of different kinds of genres. Why, why are we particularly interested in this one? I think we see in these films, in these TV shows, a reflection of society. We're all trying to navigate this rubble around us, desperately searching for signs of life. Of course, our landscape doesn't look decrepit and bombed out and kind of deserty. y our, our landscape in Turlton looks like shiny coffee shops and bars, things that are just begging for our attention. But regardless of the difference of the way things look on the outside, the search inside remains the same. We are all starving for the sacred. All of us are searching for a deeper meaning in a spiritual post-apocalyptic landscape. Now, products pretend to give an answer, buy this, drink this, eat this, wear this. Also, changes in our behavior pretend to give answers, pretend to give satisfaction. If you just meditate more, if you just love your family more, if you were just more mindful, or or if you just worked more. Now, these things can all be well and good, but they aren't really getting at our true hunger. We're striving, starving for something more, the sacred. And yet, when the sacred does come, we tend to hide from it. We want change, but we don't want to change because we're comfortable, comfortable wasting away by ourselves. But it's in this dark place, malnourished, no hope, isolated, that Jesus lives and breathes new life. And we're going to see how Jesus, the one who has everything our souls need to thrive, how he invites us to a better life. Despite our best efforts to keep him at bay, he still loves us. He still pursues us. Now, whether you're part of Redeemer or not, call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, all of us here are starving for something more, and all of us have ways to keep us in this starving state. But Jesus sees us in our barren, post-apocalyptic wasteland, and he offers us something more. Now, we're going to look at three ways we keep Jesus away, as doubters, as skeptics, as seekers, and learn what Jesus offers us in our spiritual wasteland. For us at Redeemer, we're going to find that we are a family of doubters, skeptics, and seekers, all stumbling towards what it means to find life in Jesus. So um, if you still have your Bible there, keep your keep that text open, John 20, um, 18, 24 through 29. you've ever heard that term, Doubting Thomas, this is the story of where that comes from. Poor guy is only known for doubting, and that's it. Um, uh, the doubt verses are actually not as much compared to how he appears the rest in scripture but this is what he's known for Um, and here's a situation Jesus died on the cross three days later he rose again he resurrected himself and it's crazy and it's hard to believe and many found it difficult as Thomas did and you can imagine why that would be crazy and hard to believe Thomas was one of Jesus' disciples that means he was with Jesus nonstop for years he lived together, they ate together. He saw miracles, he heard the teaching. And even after that, he had a hard time believing that Jesus truly is who he says he is. And so we'll look at these, uh, this doubter section first. Doubters, like Thomas, and we, are all, we all have aspect of this in us. It's not just like some are doubters, some are skeptics. We are all doubters. Doubters want to believe, but find it difficult. So there's a wanting to believe, but finding it difficult. They might know the right spiritual answers. They might have positive religious experiences. But the idea of certainty feels very far away. How can we know for certain? In Thomas's case, he heard eyewitness accounts of Jesus being raised from the dead. Eyewitness accounts from friends that he really trusted. When he was fearing for his life because the religious leaders were going to come after them, the people, yeah, the people he hid with, are the same very people who said, "Yeah, Jesus is resurrected." So these are like the people he trusts most in this world. But Thomas doubted. He had to see for himself. He had to feel for himself then Jesus shows up. the resurrected Jesus actually shows up and speaks to Thomas. What does Jesus do with this doubting disciple? Well, he doesn't shame him, he doesn't scold him, he doesn't shun him, doesn't tell him to have more faith and try harder. and a way he kind of does. We'll look at that in a second. But what he first does is he stoops down, he takes Thomas's hand and puts it in his, the holes in his own hand. Or he takes thomas's uh, other hand and he puts it in his side jesus pursues thomas with warmth with love with compassion and in this love then he doesn't want thomas to doubt he wants thomas to believe so jesus is a function of his love out of his love for thomas is urging thomas to live in belief not to love in doubt not to live in doubt and then thomas responds he says in verse 28 my lord my god And Jesus says, because you see me, you believed. And this last part of that verse 29 is addressed to us here today. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's us. None of us have seen the resurrected Christ. If you have, I would love to have a chat. I'd love to hear about what that was like. But how often do we, like Thomas, bring our doubts to Jesus? Often people say doubting Thomas is kind of a pejorative term. But this is, I think, an actual positive story here, because Thomas doesn't stay there. If you want to believe but find belief difficult, I want you to know that Jesus isn't fed up with you. He's not waiting to bring the hammer down. He's not like, ah, finally got them. They don't believe. He's there. He's with you in your doubt. He probably knows your doubt better than you know it yourself. And because he loves you, he doesn't want you to stay in that. So having doubt in itself in the moment isn't actually a bad thing in itself. It's what we do with it. For Thomas, he had to see Jesus on the flesh, and Jesus showed up. Now, not very many of us have that luxury. For those who doubt, often I think one of the bigger problems with our doubt is that we don't have enough. And this might sound a bit meta and a bit weird, a bit weird but it's important to doubt our doubts. Have you ever done that? I mean, it can be actually quite easy to live in certainty with your own doubts. Like, I am certain that I do not know. That's a, that's a level of certainty. It's not actual doubt. It can be quite easy to live that way. I'm not really sure what I believe, and I'll just think about it some other time. Now, doubts don't ask us to change. Doubts don't change our hearts. Doubts don't make us better people. Doubts keep us at an arm's length with experiencing the goodness that only Jesus gives. So what does it mean to doubt your doubts? Well, here's a personal scenario for me. It's hard for me to believe that God truly loves me sometimes. It's hard. Maybe you guys struggle with that. And like Thomas... I don't believe it unless I see it on my own terms. And my terms are very specific, often dealing with my own comfort or my own well-being. And so if my comfort or well-being or even like big plans are, uh, if there's a finger pressed on that or if those are maybe possibly getting disrupted, then I feel like, oh, God doesn't really love me. I'm all alone. I need to figure it out myself. I'm not good enough for God to love me. And there's a choice for me to stay there. But I've found the longer I stay there, the more my doubts actually become my beliefs. I'm not doubting if God loves me. I believe that he doesn't. But there's another way, because if I were to doubt those doubts of mine, that would mean looking outside of myself. Instead of thinking that I know everything there is to know about God through my own experience, I would maybe ask, well, what does God actually say about himself? How does he present himself to us through his word? In Thomas's case, if I was truly believe that, I would doubt those doubts, and I would see God, actually, Jesus is actually very caring. He's very loving. He's very patient, and he's pursuing me. He's calling me to more. And here's the great thing about Thomas. He doubts. Jesus comes to him. Thomas listens. He doesn't stay the same. He doesn't hide his doubt. Jesus makes him face it. Jesus does have from time to time. But Thomas moves from doubt to belief. And that's one of the reasons that my son's middle name is Thomas. I want him to be honest with his doubts. I want him to bring them to others. And most importantly, I want him to bring them to Jesus. So for doubters, all of us, I think we need to doubt more. I think we ought to doubt our doubts. I think we ought to be vocal with them, doubt in community. Often we feel shame with our doubts because we're like, oh, nobody in the world could possibly think, could possibly struggle with the idea that God loves them. I think maybe some of you might be there with me. Thomas was in the company of the disciples. All the disciples knew that Thomas didn't believe that Jesus actually resurrected. So he must have told them about it somehow. Don't let your doubts isolate you. That's what shame does. Shame always isolates us. Also, it's important to have the right goal. If, if we're in doubt, uh, certainty isn't the goal. Belief is the goal. Certainty is a bit like money. There's never enough. And if you get a little bit, then you always want a little bit more. It's like certainty is, is a horrible thing to chase after. But belief is something different because that's a relational kind of knowledge. That's a love kind of knowledge. There's a, 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 a personal aspect to it. It's ongoing. So in our doubt as a church, let's grow in our belief as well together. So that's um, when we doubt. What about when we are skeptics? A skeptic I'm defining as someone who just doesn't want to believe. So doubting is someone who wants to believe but finds it hard. Skeptics are people who just don't want to believe at all and miss out. Uh, In this next story, Jesus heals someone, it's a miracle, in front of all sorts of people, and the skeptics use anything in their grasp to bolster their existing beliefs. Uh, turn with me or swipe over to Luke 6, 6 through 11. It's page 1033 in the Red Bibles if you have one of those. Luke 6, verses 6 through 11. One, so, on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. This is Jesus who's doing this. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. The skeptics, maybe somewhat surprisingly, are the religious people, the religious leaders, the religious teachers. People who have very specific ideas of what God is and what he's not. And when God shows up and reorganizes their categories, as he often does, they don't like it. And the people here they witnessed a miracle. I mean a man's arm was shriveled, was we don't know if it was like from birth or if there was some kind of accident or whatever. We don't know if that affected his uh ability to work. Did he have to beg for food or was he able we don't know any of that stuff. All we know is this messed up arm was all of a sudden made normal in front of everybody. That must have been crazy. I, I I don't know why they're not in awe. If that was to happen right now, we'd all be like, what? What just happened? And I don't know how we'd react, run around, run around screaming or something, I don't know. Um, but those who were in charge were furious. Actually, the, the, um, the Greek word here for about that kind of anger is like an anger that leads to murder. That's how angry they were that Jesus healed in a way that um, was kind of uh, an abomination to them. And then they begin to discuss, quote, what they might do to Jesus, which we all know means basically how they're going to kill him. So instead of being moved to gratitude, the skeptics are moved to murder. They miss out on this amazing moment. I mean, they're just missing out on the joy that could possibly be from seeing this man's life probably be completely changed. And it's not that they find belief difficult. It's that they don't want to believe. And they're grasping at straws. Oh, Jesus healed in this particular way on this particular day. Surely, like, that can't be good. They do not want to believe in Jesus. They knew all the right things, they did all the right things, but they still missed out because their hearts were cold. Now, many would think that um, our society isn't quite religious in the way that this society was. In some ways that's right, but I think it's actually just a different kind of religiousness. So Manchester averages less than 2% of people going to any church whatsoever. But I think we're still very religious, just religious about different things. I think human beings can't help but be religious. So, being religious means having strong convictions alongside practices, like ongoing practices, things that we do. And in that vein, we find we're really religious about lots of things about political parties, about the things we buy, or the things we don't buy, or the food we eat, or what we don't eat. I mean, one example of this coming from an outsider American uh, is just kind of the religion of class. And we have our own class problems in America, our own race problems in America. But class problems are a specific thing to us here in the UK. Identifying with a certain class background can be basically a religious endeavor. Where you live, what you buy, thanks. It won't turn off. Just have a mind of its own. That's sweet. <laughs> uh, so our own class backgrounds, we keep. We do a lot to keep those things up. The things we choose to buy, where we buy our groceries, the names we give our children, um, the words we use, the accents in which we speak those words. Do we have national trust memberships or not? Do we hang around football pubs or not? If a word begins with an H, do you pronounce it or do you drop it? All these kind of things. They all, like, it, that all goes into who we think we are, like our backgrounds and stuff. And it's not that those are necessarily bad because uh, we're all going to have some kind of class backgrounds. How, what we do with that. And how important is it for us to present to ourselves a certain way, present ourselves a certain way to the world? If you were to one day to act completely different, either in a class that you perceive as higher or lower than yourself, how would you feel as you're walking around? How would your friends act towards you? How would your family, what would they say? We've constructed all these worlds for ourselves with strong practices, strong convictions. It's a type of religion. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. The question is, what do we do with it? especially when Jesus comes to upturn everything. The problem with religion is it can give us a false confidence, thinking that we know more than we actually do. The religious leaders thought they knew better than Jesus. He shouldn't have healed that man on that day. It keeps us from moving forward, and it stops us from having joy. In their case, the joy of a miracle, of seeing a man getting healed. So, in our lives, how are our preconceived notions removing us for joy? Not if, because they are, because we're all broken like this? How are they removing us from real life? Jesus always comes into conflict with religion. He has a tendency to upturn everything, especially when we apply those kind of categories to him. So when Jesus comes into conflict with our religions, are we going to grasp at straws to try and stay in our skeptical state? Or will we submit ourselves and maybe rethink our firmly held beliefs as we encounter the living God? Skeptics, like ourselves, don't like to submit. We just don't like it. It's not something we feel like we need to do. And I say this to those who are believers and those who aren't. We all carry these religious beliefs, and there will be times where Jesus will come into conflict with those. But he does this not to just kind of stir something up like a controversy. He does this to bring us to life, because he knows our skepticism in itself doesn't actually really lead anywhere. There's no positive moment in there. We're out wandering in this barren spiritual landscape, and our skepticism, at best, is a way to protect us from possible like being let down. If I put my hope in this and it turns out to be wrong, what then? That's really what skepticism is trying to, to protect us from. But if it's what we need, and it's right, and we don't chase after it because we're skeptical, what then? So just like with those who doubt, um, that need to doubt more, same thing with skeptics. We need to be more skeptical. There are parts about Christianity we do not want to believe in, so let's apply that skepticism to ourselves. What are we afraid of? Why would we want to hold ourselves back? Whatever it is, it just does not compare with the good life we can have in Jesus. So those, that's the, um, the skeptics. We've covered the doubters, people who want to believe will find it difficult. Uh, we've covered skeptics, people who don't want to believe. And now we're going to talk about seekers, people who believe just a little bit too easily. We're going to be in Acts 17, that's page 1113. This will be the last little section here. Acts 17. Now, maybe it's um, a bit surprising to attack someone with the term of seeker, because isn't belief like the goal? Isn't that like kind of what we're all after? Well, it sort of is, but the question is is twofold. What kind of belief do we have? Is it something shallow that basically leaves nothing? And what are we believing in? What is it we have faith in? So Acts 17, uh, verses 16 through 23. Um, just briefly what's going on here. In this uh, last scene we're getting to here, Paul and his friends are kind of getting run out, run out of town after town. People are kicking them out. The religious leaders do not like Paul and his buddies talking about Christianity, talking about Jesus. Eventually, Paul ends up in Athens and he's waiting for his friends to show up. And this is um, just a little section here we'll read from Acts 17, starting at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols so he reasoned in the synagogue with both jews and god-fearing greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there a group of epicurean and stoic philosophers began to debate with him some of them asked what is this babbler trying to say others remarked he seems to be advocating foreign gods they said this because paul was preaching the good news about jesus and the resurrection Then they took him and brought him to a meeting at the areopagus where they said to him may we know this new teaching it is you're presenting you're You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. All Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked very carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown god. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And then Paul goes on to a sermon that we don't have time to get into. Um, So the ancient Athenians, they liked new things. They liked new ideas. They had a little amount of belief in lots of different kinds of gods. And just to make sure they had it all covered, there was a place to worship a god that they didn't even know existed, some kind of unknown god thing. So it's like the catch-all god. I mean, it must have been like the ultimate liberal progressive kind of city. All gods are worshipped here. We worship all the gods, even those we don't even know yet. And when someone else rolls into town with an idea we haven't heard of, oh man, we're going to like proclaim a citywide forum so we can hear more about this God. And Paul calls them religious, very religious. There's all sorts of gods they must appease and all sorts of gods they must believe in to come through for them. Surely this is a reflection of us and a reflection of the city that we live in. Because we are awash in gods and goddesses and often believe in their false claims and how they're going to come through and rescue us. If you don't, don't want to feel alone, get a relationship. You want to feel comfort? Buy that house, buy that car. You want to feel important? Sacrifice your family for that job. You want to feel a release from this world's pressures? Go to that website. Don't want to feel it all? Well, drink it up. Sex, power, money, these are all offers to our our problems, to our questions. And we believe them. All of us do. We all participate in these in some level or another. And if we sprinkle our belief across these things, a little here, a little there, soon we find out we've run out. No more belief left. Let me tell you about my shallow belief, um, going further on from that first point. On Tuesday, I found out we didn't have our venue secured for Sunday. Great email to get in the middle of preparing a sermon. Actually, it's probably on this exact point. Maybe I should write about this. Uh, Immediately, immediately I felt my heart rate increase, my anxiety levels raise. I've told this to a few people. I was literally drinking coffee the moment I knew I cannot drink any more coffee the rest of the day. I'm just going to be too jittery, too wired. I felt alone. I felt fearful. I felt not worthy. I felt a failure. I mean, how can one small... I mean, it was literally just one line email. How can that be a catalyst for all those things going in me in in an instant? Now, here's the background for me. This church must work because you are all involved and you are all amazing and lovely people. uh, You've moved here. You've changed your lives. You're choosing schools for your kids. This better work. This must work. And then inwardly for me, this is my responsibility. I've trained for this for so long. I've had these residencies. I know Hebrew. I know Greek. I know the Bible. I can do pastory things. If this doesn't work out, what does it say about me? I must be a failure. Or at the very least, it's my fault. I failed others. I'm not good enough. So now I have this identity of this is who I am. I am a failure. And I feel shame about that. And shame is something, of course, that always isolates us. We don't want to tell other people about that. And then I knew it. In the back of my head, I always knew it. I was never really good enough. I was never really the person that I feel like I ought to have been. I'm not worth much. I'm alone in this. Nobody gets it. Nobody carries this weight. I'm not worth other people or God himself coming in alongside and helping and fixing this even. And that all happens like before I even finish reading the sentence. My identity is tied to what I do. That's one reason why I'm over- an overachiever. That's a horrible, bad thing. And if that gets disrupted, so does my identity. My faith is in the hands of what I can do. And if that's good, everything is good. If that's not good, nothing is good. What a horrible way to live. What a shallow belief. I sacrifice my identity in Christ for this false self that will never deliver on its promises. So that's just one incidence of something that happened in about you know, two minutes back. Um I know we all have our own ways of those things coming in our lives. So what do we do about it? What is the good news about Jesus and the resurrection that Paul talks about there in verse 18? What is the good news about Jesus and the resurrection for us, those with shallow beliefs spread across many gods? Well, first, this is great news for us. The object of belief is more important than the intensity of believing. Even as we gather, as many gods our arms can handle, and we look to Jesus, we see him for who he is, a loving, a patient, a compassionate God, accepting us as we are, calling us to more. And as we look into his face, even though our arms are full with all those worthless idols, eventually we drop them because we see how wonderful, how glorious, how powerful, how truly loving this Jesus is. And we miss out on that divine embrace insofar as we look to other gods. But one look at Jesus destroys everything else, and we can find renewal. We must do this often, and we must do this with others. It's not a solo thing. In a race, like a a real race, say like a half marathon or a marathon, if you're there at the finish line, You see the people in first place and second place. They are impressive. They have all the gear. They look the part. They look like marathon runners. They might be sponsored. Like, it's their job to run. That's crazy. It's some people's job. It's just to run and to train. But if you hang around a bit, you see everyone else who finishes. They're really not impressive looking from the outside. They're just normal people who have run a race, and they've kept with it. They've finished. They come in huffing, puffing, wobbly, crawling, whatever it is they can do just to finish. But they stuck with it. And this is how it is in the Christian life. There are no superstar professional runners. No one gets paid to run this race. We're all just normal people in a race that sometimes feels exhilarating, but more often can just kind of feel exhausting. We're all barely the couch to 5Kers. We aren't consistent in our training regime. We make mistakes, but eat the wrong things from time to time. We don't always wake up early in the morning just excited to lace up our trainers and go. Some might be better trained or slightly faster, but nobody's a record setter we know it's better to be in this race than not, but sometimes it's just really hard. And sometimes we don't want to do it, which is why we run together. We are a pack. We're a flock. A pride. A school. A herd. Other collective nouns for other animals. (laughs) We're a family of doubters, of skeptics, of seekers. We know we all bring that to the table, but we're all stumbling towards what it means to find life in Jesus. But we're not just that, because in the middle of this doubting, skeptical, believe everything you hear family is Jesus. He's one of us, but he's also not like us. He's with us, but he sets the pace. He encourages us. He tells us to keep going, but it's his power that he gives so that we might be able to do that thing. So we run a race, but not in our own power. The Holy Spirit, given through Jesus, is what allows us to keep going in the middle of everything. He doesn't always remove the doubt, but He gives us what we need to keep going in spite of it. If we don't trust Jesus, if we don't rely on the Spirit, we will fail. That's just how it's set up. This race is literally impossible to finish on your own. And one of the most important traits for those who follow Jesus is knowing that we can't by ourselves. We can't trust ourselves, we're not strong enough, we're all broken. We can't trust others. and though they might love us and mean well for us, they're just as broken as we are. We must trust Jesus, and not merely on our own terms. Because often trusting in Jesus means trusting others in his community that he's given to us, letting them in and sharing our lives together, not just the good bits, talking about where we doubt, where we feel skeptical. So when you doubt and find it difficult to believe, Redeemer, let's doubt our doubts. Together, let's bring that to Jesus. Let's tell him about our doubts. Let's tell others about it. And when you're skeptical and you just don't want to believe, let's apply that same skepticism towards ourselves and tell Jesus about it. You think he doesn't know about it? Of course he knows about it. And let's tell others. And when you find yourself believing in too many things, moving from one thing to another, seek more, go deeper than you're comfortable with and tell Jesus about where you are. We're not running stars, we're just finishers. We're all in this together. And this summer, we've been looking at what it means to have our identity found in Jesus as we're missionaries, as we're a family, as we're gospel formed. The question that this sermon is about is well, what do we bring to the table in that kind of equation? Well, we get to bring all the great stuff like doubt, skepticism, shallow belief, and even worse, we bring our broken past. We bring our broken darkness within us, we bring our sin. By ourselves, we are the walking dead trying to navigate this dark landscape alone. We are hopeless. But that's where Jesus meets us. And what do we get? We get new life. We get to be delivered from these things. We get a new family. We get a new mission. We get a new story that becomes our new identity. We get to be a gospel-formed family on mission. There's a reason why the sign says it. And as you look up to Jesus, like Thomas, as you look up to him in compassion, he looks down and he says, Peace be with you. Stop doubting and believe. Peace be with you. Stop being skeptical believe. Peace be with you. Stop seeking all those other gods. They're not going to give you what you want. Believe in me.